1: Well, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to another episode of GodPod. And uh, we are still doing GodPod on Zoom, and uh, even though it's getting a little easier to meet up in person um, in the UK at the moment, we're not actually in person today. We are staring at each other on a screen, as we've done for the last 18 months or so.
2: Which is probably good, because it's so hot that we'd be fairly unpleasant in each other's company, approximate to each other, I think.
1: That is exactly right. As you can imagine, we are. I don't know when you're listening to this, but we are recording it on probably about the hottest day of the year so far in the middle of July. So um, it's sweltering outside, but we're um, we're in we're in we're in good spirits anyway. But uh, so anyway, it's um, I, as you know, if you're a regular listener to, to GodPod, it's me, Graham Tomlin, as the host. We have um, Michael Lloyd. Nice to have you with us, Michael.
2: Very good to be with you both.
1: And also, we have Jane Jane Williams. Yeah, lovely to be here. And uh, we have a special guest today, and uh, it's um, we have it with us uh, Paul Woolley, and it's a uh, great delight to have Paul. It's not the first time Paul's been with us on GodPod. If you are a long-standing listener to GodPod, you may remember he was uh, on one of our earliest uh, GodPods many years ago. But, uh, Paul, it's great to have you back with us today,
3: so thanks for coming. Thank you. No, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: And uh, for those of you who, um, who don't know, Paul, Paul was, um, I think when you were on uh, pod- the uh, podcast before, you were the founding director of Fios, which is a really important think tank on um, uh, religion in society. Today continues. It's really good work. And um, Paul was involved in setting that up and went on to work for the Bible Society uh, for a number of years. And, and quite recently has moved on to um, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, well known as LICC, as uh, chief executive there. and. Um, so, Paul, um, it's great to have you back in this new guys. And again, I, I think we're all real admirers of LICC and the work that um, uh, LICC has been done doing over the, the years. And um, I think t- today we were going to think about um, a really important figure historically uh, in Christianity in this country, that um, someone who died 10 years ago and who was uh, um, involved in what I think was the founder of LICC, who is, um, of course, John Stott. He was the rector of uh, All Souls Langham Place for uh, many years. Quite a quite an important figure in, in British Christianity for a number of years. So um, Paul, tell us a little bit about your um, kind of rediscovery of John Stott as you've uh, come into this new role and um, uh, why, um, why we're particularly thinking about him today.
3: Yeah, thank you Graham. Well he, John Stott was a remarkable, truly remarkable figure. I have been at LICC now for about six months. And in applying for the role, I thought I should read up again uh, some of John start I'd, I'd realised that I'd uh, neglected him for a, a number of years, although he'd been quite formative in my teenage years. And I uh, read him. And as I read him, um, I thought, this is this is a truly remarkable figure. I mean, he, he was recognised as being remarkable, um, during his lifetime, in fact, in two thousand and five, Time Magazine ranked him among the one hundred most influential people in the world, um, which was quite something, uh, really. And and on his death, the the reaction uh, to his death in two thousand and eleven, he was ninety, was extraordinary. I, the, the news was covered on the BBC, every broadsheet, in the New York Times. Uh, what what was striking about the reaction was the way that that came across different denominations, different tribes, different theological traditions. Anyway, as I then swatted up on John Stott in preparation for the the interview process for the LiCC role, um, I thought this is a truly remarkable, a deeply radical very contemporary figure that has a lot to say to us today. LiCC was set up in 1982 but quite a lot of what John Stott, talked about what he wrote about what he spoke about um is seems more as contemporary today as it did then even more so possibly um so he's he's quite an extraordinary figure interesting background privileged background in in lots of respects but you know like lots of people um looks can be deceptive so you know he might look like the sort of typical product of a, a white uh privileged uh educated oxbridge anglicanism but in fact um that that would be deceptive it really would
1: and it's uh i think it's now it's 100 years this year since his birth isn't it so his uh, centenary of his birth has just passed earlier on uh this year in april so it's a kind of good time and uh, there's been some reflection on uh, his ministry and there's a little bit of distance now 10 years uh, since since he died and um again i i can remember reading many of his books over the the years but again like you haven't revisited them for in a while but it's, so it's good to actually uh, Ponder them again. I mean, Jane and Mike, do you want to share your immediate sort of thoughts or recollections of John Stott and his ministry? How have you encountered them?
0: For me, it was, I mean, two particular things. One was um, a massive influence on quite a lot of my friends um, when we were at university, um, All Souls, and uh, John Stott's ministry. Um, was a significant part of, of the coming to faith of quite a, quite a lot of my friends. Um, so there was that sort of personal insight into it. And then I suppose um, uh, as somebody who teaches um, modern Church of England church history, uh, that seminal interaction between uh, John Stott and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones um, about whether evangelicals uh, should should stick within the Church of England or um, form a pan-evangelical um, alliance um, which Stott very decisively tipped in the direction of evangelical staying within the Church of England decisively and I think for a lot of people um, surprisingly uh, actually um, and uh, you you can read the, the history of um, evangelicalism within the Church of England um, from the 1960s onwards entirely in terms of uh, of that uh, intervention by stott in the way that evangelicals have contributed to their formation um in modern times of of the church of england uh, and, and i don't want to carry on too long because i'm occasionally should let mike speak i suppose um but um the only
1: occasionally.
0: only occasionally but it's i mean I, I that's one i wouldn't mind picking up if we have time later paul because i think that's something that must be being re-evaluated by evangelicals in the current situation
2: yeah i i'm was impacted particularly on two occasions really. One was when John Stott came to the university I was at and did a, a mission there um, when I was an undergraduate and uh, he did a, a bible reading biblical exposition the term before the mission and somebody dragged me along to that uh, slightly screaming and kicking although I shut up during the actual talk a bit of um, and I was hugely impacted by that, uh, by the biblical exposition, by the sheer excitement of seeing scripture expanded and applied um, in a way that I would not seen done before. Um, And then through the mission, I mean, I'd I'd grown up in a Christian family, I assumed this was true. I'd never heard it argued before. Um, And the kind of rationality of the approach that he took really uh, struck me, I think. gave me an excitement for, for mission and evangelism in a way that I hadn't had before. And then much later, when I was actually at Theological College um, and had done two years there and was a year before getting ordained and went through a year of, of doubting the whole thing and the deal of depression, I, I wrote to him and just asked various questions. And he sent back a four-page reply. And this is a person who must have been unbelievably busy. But a four-page reply and invite me to go and spend and visit him which i did and he gave me a whole morning um just listening and engaging thoughtfully and sensitively and intelligently um, and that was actually a number of people helped in that way a, a, as well but uh, that the combination of him and the other people in that uh, w- was incalculable in terms of helping me rethink Mm. A, a faith I had almost lost, really, um, mm. and and regain it in, in fresh perspective and uh, a new version of it, I think, uh, shedding some of the rubbish that I'd picked up along the way mm. and uh, picking up something slightly less rubbish the other side of it.
0: Mm. What about you, Graham? Yeah,
1: I, again, I mean, like, like, like you... Um, encountered him a little bit during student years I suppose it's probably his books mostly that have that's had an impact on on, on, on me but also more generally on the the um the English church And I suppose it, I, was, I was thinking of him in terms of three sort of key things three key ideas really and I'd like to know Paul's take on how he'd weigh these these different bits and I suppose one one is um I remember reading his book on preaching um well I, I believe in preaching where, where I think he he ex- explained this this idea which is which is still you still hear it referred to quite a lot of double listening um that you know the christian or especially the preacher has to listen to the word of god in scripture but also has to listen to what's going on in the culture in newspapers and novels and films and 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 and, and the art of the time and so on and again yeah, you know, that may seem fairly common for to us now but it was quite it was quite new i guess in the time in the i don't know when that i think when that book was published i think it's probably um I think it was um, in um, in 1982. At the time, was quite a, a kind of um, new thing for to be said within evangelicalism in in, in Britain at the time. That actually it was as important to read the newspaper as it was, you know, to read um, you know the Bible in, in in terms of preaching. So there's that du- double listening idea. I guess the other book that always comes to mind is his issues facing Christians today, which was a again quite a sort of seminal book in the history of evangelicalism i think that was published in 1984 which was I, mean, I think it talked about how the, um, you know, the the mislaid social conscience of evangelicals um that in the past evangelicals had a very strong social conscience but they'd a lot of lost that and he was involved in the rediscovery of that and now now you'll see evangelical churches within the church of england and elsewhere as well uh, quite commonly involved in their local community and social action um i don't know how much of that goes back to you know stott's espousal of the kind of you know social impact of the gospel and at a time when it felt sometimes like you know evangelicals are interested in evangelism and preaching the gospel you know people on the more liberal side of the church they were interested in the social gospel and then never the two did meet but but he actually brought the two together and I suppose the third thing is was his emphasis on global Christianity you know through the Langham partnership and things that he he um he instituted so and actually I suppose when I say those three things you know double listening um, you know the social conscience of evangelicalism and global Christianity. Then you think of LICC. It's quite a lot for one person to a, to have done in, and so it does going kind to of bring you back to to you know the kind of seminal influence he had upon so many people. But um, but Paul, Paul, what would you what would you say? Do you think is his primary, um, contribution and what's what, you know, the difference he made?
3: Yeah, I think Graham, you've you've named them. I think they're three very significant aspects of who he was, and also the legacy that he leaves. In some ways, he probably practiced triple listening because he did have this emphasis on listening to to the world, to culture. And in fact, he listened in a way that few people like him had listened previously, not least to the voices from the global south. Um, He took that really seriously. So he had that aspect of his listening, but also then listening to the voice of scripture and taking that seriously and engaging with that. And then also the voice of the church. He, he talked about the importance of listening not only to the congregation that the preacher was addressing, but in fact, the voice of the whole church. He, he was often um, in a different position to some evangelical leaders who were his contemporaries when it came to engagement with Catholics and also Orthodox. Um, a little bit like where he sat in terms of the the discussion the debate the disagreement with martin lloyd jones he he was he had a different he came from it from a different angle so listening i think was a really distinctive aspect of who he was that surely is massively relevant to us today when often we're in a context where discussion debate is so polarized and often we're, we're listening to kind of discordant voices sort of comes through, and I, I think demonstrates sort of humility that issue is. Sorry to
0: interrupt you, Paul. Sorry. It's lovely that that no. listening is also personal, as Mike's story told. Mm. It wasn't just listening yes. to movements and groups, but actually also gave that kind of attention to individuals as well. It does sound as though you're describing something that's characteristic of the person—that willingness to attend to things.
2: And, and I gather that when the uh, Bishop of Durham uh, affair kind of blew up. His first response was to go and talk to David Jenkins privately. Before he would criticize anything in public or or make public statements, he just went to listen um, and and engage privately. And and I I think that's we need that kind of listening and engagement rather than instant rebuttal noise that so often characterizes what passes for debate.
1: And also, yeah. I guess yeah, at the time, right. evangelicals weren't known for listening. They were more known for preaching. Um, but evangelicalism has tended to be a, you know, focused very much on the word and enthusiasm for the word and speaking the word, whether in terms of evangelism or preaching or whatever. But it could be a very kind of one-way process, whereas... The, you know the emphasis he laid which was this kind of which is quite a, quite has got a sort of countercultural one within the evangelical movement was one about was it was one about listening listening to scripture listening to culture listening to the church listening to the rest of of, of, of um uh, of what's going on in culture at the same time
3: yeah i think that's right and i think it, it was personal as as you've described um that it wasn't an academic exercise; it was real. He took that seriously. I mean, even you know, in his listening to God in terms of his prayer disciplines. Um, I remember a friend of mine asking him towards the end of his life if he had his time again, what would he change? And he thought carefully before replying, "I would pray more." And um, I thought at the time when I heard this, I you know, this is extraordinary. <laughs> um, but, you know, given that this was someone who'd set their alarm clock um, at 5 a.m. every morning to get up and pray, but he meant it, that, 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 that prayer wasn't this sort of device for imposing our will on God. But it was a way of subordinating ourselves to him, to listening to the voice of God and to becoming in, infused by that, that, of course, impacted then on the issues that we engaged with, but even more importantly, impacted on our engagement and relationships with people.
1: Paul, well, it's really fascinating to hear that on, on the different kinds of listening. I mean, just to pick up on this issue of um, his rediscovery of the kind of the social conscience of, of evangelicalism. And I guess that was partly behind the, the uh, founding of LICC. And it was about, you know, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This was not just a backward looking thing. It was around the contemporary world, Christianity in the contemporary uh, culture and you know that that book issues facing christians today was quite a quite a groundbreaking book uh, within evangelicalism within the church of england and, and, and more widely uh, you know reappraising a number of different social issues um what, what's your sort of take on his influence um and particularly the, the significance of LICC and his setting up of that what's your kind of reading of that
3: yeah well i mean he set up LICC, in order to help Christians integrate the gospel with all of life and engage in cultural witness, um, impact the culture around them. And uh, he he took that really seriously. And I suppose there are two particular manifestations of this commitment that are are significant for me. One was back in 1974, the Lausanne Covenant, which essentially acted as a kind of manifesto um, within the global evangelical movement. And uh, he was one of the principal architects of that covenant. And right in the center of it was this commitment to social engagement—that it wasn't a, a distraction from what was central to the gospel. That the the good news had to impact the totality of everything, um, all created reality, uh, every human being. Um, that was significant, and that was that was central in that covenant. But then I think of things that he said later, I mean, in 2006, he talked about his hope. And I, I guess at this point, he's he's thinking about what's going to happen beyond him. And he talks about his, his hope being that in future evangelical leaders uh, will ensure that their social agenda includes such topics as halting climate change, eradicating poverty, um, abolishing armories of mass destruction, responding adequately to the AIDS pandemic, asserting the human rights of women and children, um, that that was really key to who he was. And he saw that uh, that was absolutely core to the gospel. It wasn't a kind of add-on thing. So I I think, you know, you see that, um, the centrality of engagement in, in social, political, economic issues. And again, I would say that there are plenty today that in some ways would look to start as a sort of influence, I suppose the disappointment might be that sometimes um, they haven't necessarily gone the whole way in recognizing the, the central significance he put on that agenda. I think the other, the other
2: thing I think can be credited to him is, um, his, his, his little book, Your Mind Matters. Um, was hugely important, I think. Uh, taking the life of the mind seriously, the obedience of the mind seriously, uh, the loving God with your mind, after all that is the bit of the, the Shema the, um, that, that Jesus himself added to the, to the Shema, uh, to the Old Testament original. Um, and, and John Stott took that very seriously, encouraged other people to take that seriously. Uh, that's what particularly as i say struck me about the um mission that he did um, when i when i was young uh, that it argued the case it took the mind seriously um and i think he actually though he was not a, you know a, a, a biblical scholar himself he encouraged a whole generation of people who were uh and and theologians Uh, in the evangelical world, which was a a fairly new phenomenon. Um, So people like Oliver O'Donovan and Tom Wright and Dick France and all of those, I mean, I think were um, hugely significant. Uh, and, And I suspect they were all influenced in some way, directly or indirectly, by that strand of his teaching
0: i know this is an impossible question to answer paul but i'm going to ask it anyway um if um if stott were alive and in his prime now what kinds of things do you think he would be involved in you've you've obviously highlighted some of the things that are still ongoing um but in the um increasingly divided kind of um polity of the of the worldwide church what what would his voice be doing now do you think
3: I think there are two things that immediately come to mind. One is I suppose to do with approach and then the other is a particular issue in terms of approach. I think he would challenge and encourage us within the church to take seriously this listening that that he talked about and sought to model. Um, It seems to me that we need to do that and need to take that really seriously. Um, And I think often listening, not least when it comes to theological difference, um, often is a a tool that's weaponized rather than being an authentic experience. I think Stott shows us what authentic listening looks like. I think that's Christ-like. I think one of the the things that strikes me as extraordinary about the Jesus that I read about through the Gospels is the number of questions that he asked. I mean, often it seems Jesus asks more questions than perhaps he always gives the answer to but i think that again wasn't just a kind of teaching rabbinical device it it was genuine in terms of trying to listen to people and understand who they were where they were coming from uh, in order to have a conversation about who god is and how god is at work in the world i think the second um, area that i'd point to would be i think he would, still be wanting to talk about the the climate and ecological crisis mm-hmm. i think he would want to remind us that if we believe that the cosmos is the object of god's saving activity in the person of jesus christ that has to mean that our interaction with every living thing is radically affected if i really believe that God so loved the whole world, the cosmos, all created reality so much that he gave his son. If I really believe that that is the object of God's saving action in the person of Jesus, um, if I really believe that it's created in for by Christ, that has to radically affect my interactions with every living thing. Um, I will not go and (laughs) kind of throw litter on the side of the road if I believe that 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 is what creation is um and and I, I will address my life more fundamentally than that. So I think he would be drawing our attention back to that. And so we've got to take this really seriously and 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 also, I think what he would do is he would talk about that, but he would talk about it always in reference to Christ. I think one of the things I'm struck by sometimes by the theological discussion around issues to do with climate and the environment is that it's almost as if it's sort of detached from Christian theology. I think Stott's approach always was Christocentric. So a conversation about that would always begin, end, and include the person of Jesus. And and kind of if if we don't do that, we're we're not giving a true account of how things are. So there are two things, certainly, I think that he would be uh, continuing to to advocate um, today. That's That's
0: so helpful. Sorry, because that, that's where his authority came from, wasn't it? Actually, yeah. that the yeah. centrality of Christ. Sorry, Graham.
1: Yeah, it is fascinating that he focused attention on the environment and I mean, I guess they didn't talk about climate change in quite the same way, but you know, the um I mean just looking at the 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 chapter headings of issues facing Christians today, it is, you know, he talks about the environment, north-south inequality, human rights. Uh, the, you know, issues of race, poverty and wealth, you know, questions of sex and gender, you know, they're all kind of issues we grapple with today. And particularly talking about environmental issues in the early 1980s, when it wasn't so much of a big deal as we as we know it is now, it was quite prescient in in its own way. I mean, Paul, Paul you, you've read some of the books recently. I mean, I guess, you know, the 1980s can seem like a long time ago from from. Where we are today? Do they still read as things you could read and gain something from today? Do they feel a little bit dated? Um, and uh, and you know, how do they read as you've read them more recently?
3: Yeah, we that's a good question. I think absolutely they're they're relevant, and he's he's doing all sorts of things that that we need to do, and and models it in such a a generous, unassuming way. Um. I think undoubtedly though as you as you read them you you are reading um the 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 work of of someone who you know had they lived would have been a hundred and that reflects their own particular cultural context educational environment uh use of language um i think often in fact when you hear him speak even if you kind of you know go to just, you know, watch him speak, particularly some of the interviews, um, there you get uh, very much a sort of a very contemporary sort of figure. Um, and it, it doesn't feel particularly dated, perhaps on some of the books. You know, you've just got like with any, I mean, with any theologian from the past um, or, or or any writer in the past, you know, you've, you it sometimes takes you a little while to kind of adjust just to their their tone of voice and, and their approach. But um, I think he, yeah, I think they're very contemporary Speak um, and speak very, you know, powerfully. Um, to say one of the things by the way that he does, he does as well, which I think is so powerful is he really sort of sets out to destroy this sort of sacred secular divide. Um, not least when he he talks about calling. So he's, he's committed to, he doesn't quite use this phrase, but effectively the liberation of the laity. Um, And and he's wanting to challenge the idea of hierarchy of roles. So he's wanting to say, look, you know, whether or not God has called you to be a, a priest in the Church of England or a script writer, what counts is not the role, it's the call and it's obedience to that call. And then in both contexts, the challenge for the Christian is to live faithfully as a disciple of Jesus. That's that sounds to me a pretty contemporary, significant thing to say.
1: If I can pick up the um, the third strand, which was his commitment to the global Christianity, and as you you were talking about listening to the voice of Christians elsewhere in the world, what what lay behind that? Do you think? what what what, um, what led him to emphasise so much that sense of um, Christianity is a global phenomenon? Because as, as you say, he was a very, in some ways, classically. British, public school, white, educated, the kind of person that you might expect to be just sort of focused upon this culture, but he laid great and great emphasis upon learning from the world church. What, what lay behind that, do you think, and what's the significance of that?
3: Yeah, I think he he changed. I mean, that's an important thing to say about him. I think he, he changed from someone um, who perhaps had more the sort of approach to the gospel and say the prioritization of evangelism for example so he changed from that to a a a sort of a a bigger vision I would say Uh, so he had a kingdom vision and it was a global vision I think a lot of that came because he listened so because he listened he was challenged and because he was challenged he changed I mean he was he was self-critical and he was humble enough to change when he realized he'd got it wrong. And so there are occasions where, particularly in terms of social engagement, he talks about the fact that, you know, he, he well, on be- behalf of the evangelical um, uh, uh, tradition, he, he confesses, he, he, he he's penitent for often the, the failure that that tradition has had to take global social engagement seriously but again his his conviction there comes from his listening. I think he delighted in seeing others succeed and therefore in his extensive travels he encountered all sorts of people often young people uh, with no means of continuing their theological education and and that prompted him then to return to the UK and to set up Langham Partnership in order that you know that trust might then help gifted students from the global south to earn doctorates um, and then return home even if they were studying in the uk or or elsewhere in europe return home in order that they then might teach in the theological seminaries from which they came so um a kingdom vision i would say but that kingdom vision and global vision definitely came out of his his posture of listening
2: i i I came across that firsthand in the sense that um I was asked to go and spend a week with some Polish theological students. He had met when he was in Poland. Uh, they had come to him. He'd been encouraged them, them to take the life of the mind seriously and uh, academic study seriously. And they said, but there are virtually no uh, you know, books from a kind of evangelical perspective in our language. And he said, well, you better learn English and arrange for them, to, half a dozen of them to come over do an English course, <clears throat> and then have a week's holiday at the Hookses, his, his cottage, um, with some English people, of whom I was one, to improve their English. And it happened to be the week that the Jaruzelski government fell uh, at the beginning of the end of communism. Uh, and it was extraordinary to be in the company of these Polish people as history was happening and they weren't there. They were just li- glued to the radio because, of course, there was no television or no electricity in the hooksies of those days. Uh, nice. And it was quite extraordinary. But but I think one of the secrets of his listening is is travel, uh, and and listening and the global, particularly the global uh, reach, was that he travelled so much with his ministry that he came across people and then changed because he talked with them. Um, and they
1: they did feel at the end of a week that speaking to you had improved their English, Mike. <laughs>
2: Uh, I, I, I have a particular ministry of commas, but of course it's difficult to do that um, in, in in actual direct speech. So you need to have a yep. to the comma is very important. Yeah.
0: But obviously, um, we don't. I mean, I have no idea how time works out. Who are the most influential people? I mean, what what kind of criteria they use? But I mean, it is sort of enviable to feel that there is a person of that kind of stature who's impacting wider culture and wider society um uh, and you know uh, i think that's part of what all of us who are interested in preaching the good news sharing the good news uh, long to be able to do is impact the culture that we're in obviously stock didn't set out to be um one of the time most um, 100 most influential people uh, is it that global reach that do you think that um that that gives him that particular status is it the 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 preaching is it what what, I mean if you had to what, what do you think time were talking about when they saw him as so influential for the culture at that time
3: well I wonder whether it was a combination of depth and reach um so he was a deep person um Often think of. I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about that people being either trees or flowers. Was it C.S. Lewis? And, and he talked about the fact that, he, of course, he liked flowers because you know they look nice, don't they? But they're sort of here today, gone tomorrow. Whereas trees are deep and they've got roots and they endure and they've got character. Um, if C.S. Lewis didn't say, he is he, he sort of thinking might have said. <laughs> um, and I think Stott was like that, wasn't he? He was uh, he was deep in his in his listening, deep in his analysis. Of, of scripture and his analysis of culture he took interpreting culture seriously as biblical um, exegesis um, but then also there was the the reach and and the the extensive travel and and then particularly you know recognizing that that the growth of the church in in the future was going to be in in places you know like africa and south america and in asia so i i sort of sense it's Maybe it's the combination of those two things, which, particularly in his time, was so unusual.
1: Well, I suspect it was also that at that time, it was a time when I mean Jimmy Carter was president of the United States from what 1977 to 1981. It was a time when the sort of evangelical movement in the states was becoming very prominent in all its various forms. And I think he he was seen as a as a as a leader, but a sort of sensible leader of the evangelical movement globally Uh, not part of the moral majority sort of movement not on that very ultra conservative sort of strand of uh, evangelicalism but actually therefore because of the growth of this movement in America they were very conscious of it and that may have been one of the reasons why they identified him as a uh, as a key figure you know in this sort of growing movement in in, um, and it would have been very interesting to see what how he would have um, responded to sort of later developments in American evangelicalism and some more recent ones as well, which I'm not sure he'd have been very pleased with.
0: How did he cope with being um, a celebrity? Uh, because obviously he had um, he, he, a massive following, didn't he? And people um, uh, and, you know, significant amount of what you might call celebrity. Um, did he ever write about that, talk about that as far as you know?
3: Um, I don't. I mean, I can only say what I saw modeled. So I don't think. I mean, he did talk about the dangers of being fetted. So he did, and he talked about pride and said, you know, that is without doubt the greatest temptation of Christian leaders. And mm. you know, he he didn't think you should enjoy the sort of you know the acclaim. Um, I think um, he he uh, one of the, I, the distinctives was the way he he just gave wealth away. So. He, you know, the, the the royalties on the books that went to then they were recycled in order to then pay for the scholarships for those going on to to study further. So he lived in a an, a modest um, little flat, which was I think above the the, the garage of the rectory at, at All Souls, Langham Place. Um, I think that's quite conscious. He did. He sort of he 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 didn't seek sort of power or status, although. Often, you know, powerful and, and influential people would kind of come alongside him um, to seek his advice. Um, I mean, I think he was he was just deeply authentic. I I feel, you know, I I feel well, what's the personal challenge for me? And what Stott invites me to do, which is a good sign, is it not, is is come back to, to Christ and 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 that that that's the place of of belonging and security and identity and significance. And 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 you know, I think he models that. So, but yeah, he, I think he was aware of the temptations. But to, to and and he probably would. I think I once heard him say that he would, um, you know, he he was sort of as prone to others as to those temptations. But that he was, you know, conscious in in seeking not not to enjoy it and to 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 to, to, to put it to one side.
2: There was a nice, wonderful story I heard of uh, one occasion, which suggests that he could use humour to deflate his own kind of dangers and temptations in this area. Uh, when somebody introduced him in horribly overblown ways and saying, uh, the person introducing him said, I would crawl a thousand miles on my hands and knees to hear this man speak. And John Stott said, he proceeded to sleep through the entire address. So that I can only conclude that the crawl had worn him out.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we, we ought to, um, our time has run out, we ought to draw this to a close. One last question to you, Paul. If um, people listening to this, um, um, some may n- never have heard of John Stott, some may uh, know of him and be remembering their recollections of his ministry. If there was one book that you think people should go back to that still has some relevance today that people should read to um, to kind of uh, draw the essence of what what he was about. What would you say that would be? What what, what would you point people to? I think
3: it's a very different. It's like Desert Island Discs, isn't it? And you know what? <laughs> what ultimately out of everything we've talked about, would you would you go for? I think ultimately, though, I'd probably go for issues facing Christians today. And I think I would encourage people. To, I'd encourage people to read it. But I'd encourage people to read it with the sort of posture that I think Stott would have read it. It, In other words, um, it was written at a particular point in time, and therefore Stott is engaging with the particular issues that are surfacing at that time, and people change over time as, as they grow in understanding. I think sometimes there's a danger that we take someone like John Stott and we sort of he he becomes sort of fixed in aspect. You know, we whereas that wasn't who he was, he he grew, developed his understanding change. So I think approach approach the book with that posture and and a posture of of listening, listening to, 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 listening both to what John Stott is writing, but in a way more importantly, listen to how he's doing it. And I think then that takes us back to the the double or triple listening and that is one of the most enduring aspects of his legacy, I think.
1: Well, thank you so much. I think you've inspired me to go back and read it myself quite soon. But, um, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jane and Mike, as always. It's been good to um, spend some time together.
0: Lovely to, to see
1: you. <laughs> and uh, Particular thanks to Paul. Thank you so much for coming to join us and to um, uh, stimulating our thoughts and our memories of um, a very significant figure uh, in um, the Christianity of this country over the last um, 50 years or so. So really grateful to, um, to you, Paul, and um, thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, no doubt if you're a regular GodPod listener, we'll be back again before too long. And uh, see you next time.
0: That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.